Father in heaven, this indeed is our, is our faith, is our trust, Lord. We trust that all power belongs to you, that to you alone is the glory, Lord. You are the one who sanctifies us by your word. You send out your Holy Spirit, Lord, to apply that word. And Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're, we're, we're taking a break from Romans, as you might have guessed, because it's been going on for a couple of weeks, to talk about uh, prayer. We're doing this 30 days of praying for our city, praying for uh, Houston or West Houston and Katy, alongside many of the other churches in West Houston and Katy, uh, specifically for the neighbors that live around us. So your neighbor across the street, your neighbor on your left and your right, and Caddy Corner and behind you as well. And uh, if you receive that, that packet then you, uh, and wrote those names down on the card, then you've probably already been to uh, blesseveryhome.com where you can find the names of those those people, if you don't already know the names of your neighbors, for example, the people behind you, if you've not met them, or the people Caddy Corner, if you haven't met them, this will give you a way to find out who lives there. So you can be praying for them by name uh, for these 30 days uh, alongside others within our city. And I thought it would be helpful to take, initially I had just planned uh, two weeks on prayer and fasting, which we hit the last two weeks. But then I thought, you know what, prayer is a, prayer is a, a discipline that's just hard to do. I think it would be helpful to, to not just have those two weeks, but to go ahead and extend it and talk about prayer during this 30 days uh, that we're going through. Because to be honest, I, I think all of us struggle with prayer, whether it's the practice of prayer, whether it's the understanding of prayer, whether it's the confidence of prayer. There's just aspects of prayer that are difficult for us to do or at least to maintain doing, which is a little bit funny because in concept, I think we all get what the idea of prayer is, where prayer is just talking to God, and yet it just seems to be this thing that's kind of hard to do. Uh, I know I talk a lot about corporate prayer, doing things corporately. We talk about the ordinary means of grace by which you know, God's people are growing up in the grace, and, we, and one of those things is prayer, and we talk a lot about the idea of corporate prayer. And corporate prayer is important. You know, to be part of the body of Christ, so we come together to worship, that we are spending our worship time in prayer. I mean, if you notice, this, this worship service is an extended time of prayer. That's why you see the Lord's Prayer just throughout it. We're, we're going from one aspect of praying to the rest. So we're praying together corporately. We're learning in some ways how to pray just by coming to worship and praying together with other believers. And, and I think that can be helpful, uh, praying corporately with, with people. Um, I remember the story about that, that C.S. Lewis talks about the importance of being around other people when it comes to your own personal relationship with God. And he likens it to this friendship that he had with people in this, this group of writers that would meet together on a regular basis. And they were very close with one another. And there was one story he was relating when a friend of his in the group had... had a, uh, I'm trying to remember how the story goes, how it had passed away. And he was, he was, in some ways, there was a part of him that thought, well, now I can have more of this other person because I don't have to share him with as many people. But what he found instead was there were aspects of the other people in the group that were only brought out by the one person who wasn't there. So those aspects of this particular friend of his, he no longer got to enjoy because it was this other friend who brought them out. 
who brought those characteristics, those qualities out. And I, I could say this when it you know, comes to, to being involved in corporate prayer. There are times when you can be praying with other people and you listen to the way they pray and you get a sense that they know different aspects of God in a way that you perhaps don't know. And you won't know that unless you're praying with other people. You know, one of the things that uh, I've really enjoyed and appreciated about my time here at Cornerstone is that there's a, a men's prayer breakfast every Friday morning where men, about 8 to 10, sometimes less, sometimes more, will get together and, uh, and pray. Uh, I mean, we, we breakfast too, and we shoot the breeze, and we talk about life, but then we pray together. And you, as, you, as you hear each man pray, you can get a sense of what their relationship with God is like. It's like a little window there. And I'm learning things about God through their prayer that I don't necessarily experience in my own personal time. And it's, it's, it helps me to grow. But at the same time, for corporate prayer, prayer to work and for those things to actually be helpful, those, each of those people do have to have a personal relationship with God. They have to have some relationship with God that's being cultivated in their own one-on-one -on -one time with the Lord that gets somehow brought out when we come together corporately. So this morning, the topic is not the corporate prayer, because I talk about that all the time, and I rarely talk about this, but this morning we're going to talk about praying just one-on-one -on -one with the Lord, because that is important too, especially when it comes to praying corporately, that other people might learn something about the Lord through the way that you pray. So we'll talk about prayer once again. And why is prayer such a hard thing for you? I mean, I'm sure there are a variety of reasons that you might give, and I can imagine one reason would be, well, I don't, I don't know what to say when I get together. You, know, you think, after all, what do you say to God who already knows everything? <laughs> right? Yeah. What do I say? Well, I mean, we could simply say, well, how do you talk to your mom and dad when you were little? You know, they know things too, but yet you go to them. It's kind of like that. You, know, you, you, you pray you bring your things before the Lord, you, you have a relationship with Him the same way you did with your parents, even though they probably already knew all the things that you wanted to tell them. So we can disband that. You don't have to worry about what you pray. The idea is that you're, you're, you are praying. Uh, so what other struggles do we have? I think one of the big ones is that prayer requires some measure of time, some degree of discipline. And those are two things that are really hard to come by in our culture. I mean, we are so engaged with so many activities. We're used to being engaged with our minds doing something all the time. I think there used to be in society more tendency to be quiet, but with the, with the rise of you know, our, our instant computers that we carry around all the time, the connection to the internet, the connection to social media, there is this sense in which we just don't have that, that time to stop. We've, it's trained us to be these ADHD-type what is it, ADHD-type people. Our attention span is, is so dwindled down that to spend some concentrated time away from doing all of these activities in something that would seem inactive is just a big challenge. But at the same time, there are things that you will do, even though it takes you away from those things. And what are those things? Those are things that you have deemed to be vitally important and that you want to do. So prayer has to become one of those things that we consider vitally important and that we want to do. And I think both of those things are true. And you may be saying, well, I 
think they'll both of those things in theory, and yet I still struggle to pray. And I would say that, well, maybe you don't want it enough. Maybe you don't want to do it quite enough. Uh, last, I think the one thing that we struggle with in prayer isn't that we don't know what to say, isn't that we, we, we know we have time to do it, it's just that we're not, we don't have the proper motivation to pray. And last week, Nathan really kicked us off on the right foot, giving us a powerful motivation by talking about the fact that prayer really does work. It works. I mean, that story is such a great story. Here's a man who comes with his son to Jesus because absolutely nothing else worked. And so he comes to him with this prayer. And we can relate with that because we've been to places in our lives when nothing else worked and we went to God in prayer. The difficulty is when all the rest of our lives, when it seems like everything is working and we don't feel the need to go before Him. It's like as if the only motivation we have to go before the Lord is when we really feel like we've reached the end of our rope and we don't know what to do. Because most of the time we're living life and it seems like we can handle it. And so therefore, we're not that motivated to go to the Lord. We know in our minds, oh, we know it's important, we know we should do it, but we don't do it because we don't feel the need for it, perhaps. So I wanted to give you another motivation. It's a very simple motivation, and it's simply this, that spending time with God the Father is actually an enjoyable thing. It's, it's an ultimate end, if you want to think of it that way. Time with God is an ultimate end, not just a means to some other end. It is an ultimate end. And I, I wanted to, to try to, to, to kind of grasp um, that by just looking at a life in the day of Jesus and to see how prayer affected him or how he engaged in a time of prayer. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open with me to the book of Mark chapter 1. And I know I list in your bulletin just a few verses, and that's what we're going to concentrate on. But I want to read the broader context of those verses. So I'm going to start in verse 21 of Mark chapter 1. Uh, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they, took him, they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, 
he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Well, let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is God's word. Please have a seat. Well, as again, I, I wanted to, I'm, I'm focusing specifically on that last little piece when it says in verse 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And he was alone, obviously, because Simon and those who were with him had to search for him. So he goes out by himself in the morning while it was still dark to a desolate place where no one else was around. But the context, I think, is important. Because this day that you just read, this was a busy day. I mean, Jesus in the morning, he's at the synagogue, he's teaching, and then he casts out a demon. And then he goes with his disciples, they go to, uh, to, to Simon Peter's house, and, and uh, his mother-in-law is sick in the house, so he heals her disease. And then a little bit later on at night, people are here, know where he is, and they're bringing to him all kinds of sick people and all kinds of demon-possessed people, and he's healing more people. He's casting out demons. This whole day from the beginning to the end is packed full of ministry. It's in that context you think that Jesus the next morning takes time out and goes to pray. Now, we're talking about Jesus here, and you think, Jesus is fully capable of casting out demons. I mean, he's the, he's the Son of God, right? He's the second person of the Trinity. He's fully capable of mastering the weather. He's fully capable of casting out diseases or healing people of their sicknesses, of helping the lame to walk and the blind to see and such and such. So what is this aspect of time alone with God all about? Well, I would say simply put, he needed it. I know that sounds odd to say. Jesus needed time with God. We need time with God. So how do, why do we pray? Well, because we need time with God. Now, hopefully you're saying, yeah, of course, I know that already. You're not telling me anything new. But if we really believed that, then we would do it more often than we do. Perhaps it is the time that you spend with God reflects the amount that you think you actually need Him. Now here we get into a little bit different of category. This is, this is kind of a dangerous aspect. The amount of time that you spend with God, I think, somewhat reflects the amount of, that you actually feel like you need God. So if you don't spend a whole lot of time in prayer, that says something about the way that you see yourself. That don't necessarily have a whole lot of need. Now I know Nathan was bringing out this idea this picture of this man who had a, a son who had, was demon-possessed, and he had tried everything to take care of his son, and nothing would work. And so finally, it's this last resort almost, he brings him to Jesus and saying, there's absolutely nothing I can do. Can you do something? And the whole point is that sometimes there are only prayers, the only thing that works. But I would suggest to you, I want to go one step, I want to build on what Nathan was telling you and say that there's everything about life, everything about life, is what you need the Lord for. You may not always feel that way, but that is the reality. And I want to take you some places of Scripture that help us to see that. 
So for example, in Acts 17, as Paul is preaching, he says, he, he puts it in a helpful way. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, there is a sense in which there is not any time in your life when you are outside of God that's sustaining your life. That is giving you the very every breath that you have. Jesus says plainly in John 15, uh, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we need to make this connection somehow in our minds. Literally, apart from the Lord, we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Now that alone should be the motivation to, okay, well, let's, let's spend a little more time in prayer. Even these little things I need to do in the morning, I can't do apart from the Lord. Even those things, these little things I do during the day at my job, I can't do apart from the Lord. We don't, like I said, we don't always feel it, but that's simply the reality. And now let's talk about Jesus' example for, example, uh, for just a minute. Because He spends this day busy, healing lots of people, casting out demons, preaching and teaching, one after the other. And he has no problem doing these things. Again, he's the Son of God. So why does he stop and take time away? Because he needed to. And I want you to hear what he says to help us understand this. I want to go back to the book of John for a minute. John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, of, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. I mean, did you hear that? Jesus is saying the Son can do nothing of His own accord. That is remarkable. I don't think that's what we often think about Jesus. We think of Him as a capable person. He can cast out demons. He can heal the sick. He can stop the weather if He wants to. And what He says about Himself is the Son can do nothing apart from His Father. So the point is, if Jesus can do nothing apart from the Lord, why on earth would we ever think that we could? But that's not all. Let's keep going. John 8, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Or John chapter 12, verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So what we learn is that Jesus lived a life utterly dependent upon the Father. And he needed time alone with God for what? Everything. <laughs> for everything. So don't you think we need time alone with God also for everything? Everything. So that's the first point. We need time alone with God. But secondly, we need to know the mind and the heart of God. So we pray. I want you to think carefully about what Jesus had said earlier in, verse, in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. 
The whole idea is that we, we desire to live a life that bears much fruit. And if we are to, to live a life that bears much fruit, we have to not only be with God, to abide with God, but we have to know the mind and the heart of God. Did you hear what Jesus says about he's, he's learning what to speak, what to do? He only does what he sees the Father doing. He only says what the Father tells him to speak. There's this implicit idea that Jesus is very in tune with the Father's heart and mind. And therefore, what is Jesus able to do? Well, He's able to cast out demons. He's able to heal the sick. He's able to heal the world, really. He is bearing fruit because He knows the heart and the mind of God. He knows what the Father gave Him to say because He's alone with Him. He knows how to judge with the Father's judgment. He's applying this alone time with God. And you could ask, well, why alone? Why did He have to be alone to do all this? Why did He have to get away? And there's a simple answer to that, and I would think it's this, to free Himself of the distractions of all the things on His plate to do. All the people in his life to see and to help. Paul Miller writes a book called The Praying Life, which is very helpful. And by the way, if you want to really dive into an understanding of prayer, I'd encourage you to get that book. Uh, a lot of the ideas of this, of this uh, message come from that book that he talks about. Um, and he makes the point that Jesus spends focused time, uh, not just with God, but with people. And I don't know if you notice that as you read through the Gospels and Jesus encounters people, he's, He gets very personal with them when He heals them, for example. Like the, the, the parable that Nathan was talking about last week, He has a conversation with the Father. He didn't have to do that, right? He could have just cast Him out. He could have done it completely impersonally. And yet He takes dedicated time, there's people around, He takes dedicated time and focuses one-on-one -on -one with that Father. Or when he heals the, uh, the lame man, he takes one-on-one, -on -one, he engages with him, he, he touches his tongue or his ears that he might hear or his eyes that he might see. He stops one day because a woman in the crowd touches him and he, and he, and, and he says, who, who touched me? And his disciples say, ah, come on, you're in a crowd of people, everybody's pushing him. No, no, there's one particular person I need to focus on. And he focuses strictly on this one woman who'd had trouble for years of bleeding and just wanted some time with Jesus. And so he gives her that dedicated time in the midst of the masses of crowds of people. And often we see him taking his disciples out to be alone, away from the crowds, so he can focus specifically on them. So it would make sense if Jesus engages in relationships by focusing with his undivided attention on those he's relating with at the time, it would make sense that he needs to do that with God too. I don't want to be distracted. I want to have time that is dedicated with the Lord, where I can hear His voice without distraction, that I'm not tempted to pull away and help somebody or talk to somebody else or this or that. He wants one-on-one -on -one time with the Lord. And it's interesting because when He teaches His disciples to pray... This is part of that lesson. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, he says, When you pray, go into your room, 
and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. So Jesus practices it, and as he teaches us to pray, he tells us to do the same thing. Go into your room and shut the door. Free yourself of distractions. Spend some one-on-one, devoted, focused time with the Lord. And what's the result? The Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, we can speculate, what does that mean? What is the reward that He's going to reward us with? I mean, it could be an answer to your prayer. That's certainly a reward, I would say. But I think the reward He's talking about is there is a relationship that you have nurtured with your Father who loves you so dearly that that relationship itself becomes a great reward. You see, I think it becomes the ultimate end. Because I think we often have prayer backwards. We go to God because we have an end in mind, a need in mind, and that's the means that we have to get to this end. But the reality is there is an end that is God Himself. In fact, that is the ultimate end. All these other things are really peripheral to ultimately the relationship that we have with, the, with God, with God Himself. I mean, think about the ways that the Scriptures talk about God. Some of the pictures are, He calls, he calls Israel His bride. He calls the church His bride. That's a pretty intimate relationship. <laughs> there are times when the Scripture calls God a friend. It was the friend of Abraham, for example, the friend of Moses. Why does it talk about Him that way? Because there is this closeness of relationship that is meant to exist. That is an end in itself. I mean, you think about the time, the, the people in your life that you enjoy spending time with, that you like, your spouse, your, your best friend. Well, how do they get to be your spouse or your best friend? You had to have time alone with them to get to be that. You don't call someone your best friend who you simply know a lot of facts about, but you've never actually spent any time with. And the same thing is true with a spouse that you dearly love. How did you get to the place where you dearly love them? Because you spent dedicated, devoted time with them. This is unagenda-driven time. In other words, you spend time with these people, not when you had something to accomplish together. I mean, you might do that too. But you just spent time with these people because you like to be around them. You didn't have an agenda. You didn't know what was going to come up in the conversation. Have you ever spent time with God that way? You say, you know what? I'm going to get into a quiet place, and I am just going to set my mind to be with the Lord. Now, maybe you have the Scriptures open. Maybe you're reading it but you don't necessarily know what's going to come up in that conversation. You don't know what the Lord might lead or put on your mind, perhaps as you're reading His Word. And I would suggest that there are things you can discover about the Lord as you're reading His Word because you have set aside the time to be with the Lord in a dedicated way. What makes those friends into friends? Well, uninterrupted, unagenda-driven times. 
This is what he tells Abraham when he calls him. We turn back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. There's that idea of reward again. Now, the, the, that's the ESV version, and you could, it's not perhaps quite as clear as the, the literal translation. The NIV says it a little differently. It says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. The literal, the literal Hebrew says, I, your reward, will be very great. The idea is that the reward for Abram is the relationship with God. Because the whole idea in the time of Abram was right after the, the Tower of Babel, and God had distributed the people according to this, you know, these the sons of God, as, as, uh, as we learned from Deuteronomy 34, which means there is a sense in which they are being stewarded or overseen by somebody besides God Himself. And so when, when God calls Abram in Genesis chapter 12, He's doing something very unique. He's saying, all the people have been put under the charge of other people, but you... I'm going to bring directly under my charge. I will be your God, and you will be my people. We will be in intimate contact and connection with each other, and that is your very great reward. You have something that the rest of the earth does not have. He's claiming him as his own. He's making him his people, his spouse. That's the language he uses. On the account of Moses, when Moses is leading the people through the wilderness, we find that he would meet with God one-on-one -on -one regularly. I want to read about uh, one of those experiences. In Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 11, it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. What a remarkable statement. <laughs> I mean, there is... You, there, that is relational language. There's no other way to interpret that as other than there is a unique relationship that exists between Moses and God. And it happens as a result of them speaking face to face. Now, here's, here's, let me go on and read. Here's an account. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let... Uh, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, that is, God said, my presence go, will go with you and I will give you rest. And he, that is Moses, said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? How will people know that I have favor in your sight if I am not with you? Now, it's, I know the language is interesting. You know, he says, my presence will go with you. And Moses says, well, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't even want to go. Uh, you know, commentators would talk about the, the implication that when, when God initially said my presence would go with you, he was talking about a representative presence. 
where Moses is saying, I don't want a representative presence. I want you. And your people want you. And if you don't go with us, what's the point of having land? What's the point of the promises? If you're not with us, it's, it's pointless, do you see? God isn't the means to the land. The land is meaningless without God. That's the implication. And this is another interesting aspect, I think, that illustrates this well, this well um, which is why we spend time with God. He is an ultimate end. And uh, what happens when you do that? This is what happened to Moses a little bit later on in, that, in Exodus chapter 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. That is such a remarkable picture. Now, I know that may not literally be the case with you after you come out of you know, spending time with God, your face is shining. But there is a sense in which your countenance is, your countenance is lifted. Your countenance is shining in a way. Here it's illustrated for us to see explicitly. The people got the picture when Moses came out of spending one-on-one -on -one time with God that it had an effect on him, a profound effect on his face, his demeanor of who he was. So much so that it scared the people. And he had to put a veil over his face until he would go back and meet with the Lord. When you spend time with the Lord to such a degree that it begins to be the reward in and of itself, how can it not affect your countenance and your demeanor and the way other people see you? You see, spending time with God is an ultimate end. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What is he talking about? He's talking about the end. What's at the end? The end is I get to see God face to face, not dimly like I can now, but I get to see Him face to face. That's the end, do you see? Or Revelation chapter 21. Let me back up. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. You see, that's the end. That's where we're going. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There is a picture of, again, intimacy. What are, what are, what are the people of God called? The bride. The bride has been finally made beautiful through all the difficulties that we go through in this life so that she can be brought to be married to the Lord. In other words, the final end is a relationship of great intimacy with God Himself. That's how He's picturing it. And it's so close that He personally wipes away the tears from your eyes. That's how close it is. 
John 14, verse 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You see, this is, the, this is their ultimate end. And what's the way to that place? He goes on to say, you know the way where I'm going already. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So how do you get to spend one-on-one time with the Lord and enjoy this kind of intimacy, this kind of closeness? Well, you have to go through Jesus. You have to understand that the reason that people were kept away from God in the first place is because they were guilty and they could not dwell in the midst of a holy God. That's why they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. That's why in the Old Testament they had all those sacrificial ways about them to practice because they couldn't dwell with God in their midst without something happening to make them set apart. And all of those practices they went through with the sacrificial system and such was all pointing to the ultimate way in which God would bring them close, and that was through the work of Jesus Christ. As He would die on the cross, He would be the sacrifice that atoned for the guilt of the people who put their trust in Him. And it was so impactful that the moment that He died on that cross, the veil that once stood between the place where God's uh, presence was was manifested on earth, the Holy of Holies, and the rest of the temple, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom because God had broken through. He had finally solved the guilt problem that kept man at bay. Now he can be brought close. Now he can enjoy that intimacy of one-on-one relationship with the Father. So, hopefully, you're motivated to spend some time with God. You need it, and you need it every waking moment, for apart from Him you can do nothing. And you need it in order to know the mind and heart of God, so that your life might bear fruit. And ultimately, you need it because this is the ultimate end. And how can we not do now what we long to experience for all eternity as a taste of what what is to come? So how do you do it? How do you do it? Hopefully, we can talk about that more in a few weeks, but let me just notice some of Jesus' practices. His practice was to get away in the morning. He doesn't tell us when He teaches us to pray that we have to do it that way, but that's the way He did it. He got away often, as Luke tells us, often in the mornings to have dedicated, you know, where He's isolated time with the Lord. The psalmist, we see that often, How many psalms begin, in the morning I bring my sacrifice to you? In the morning I think about your steadfast love. We used one of those in our liturgy this morning. Psalm 5, verse 3, which is in your liturgy. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and 
and watch. Isn't that an interesting word? It's kind of a passive word. I watch. I watch to see what you're going to do. Psalm 59, 16, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. Maybe your prayer time one-on-one is just singing. Singing about what? Well, singing about the steadfast love of God. These are practices that have that are made examples for us. Psalm 88, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Cry before the Lord. Whether that's tears of joy, cries of despair, cry before the Lord. Sing of His steadfast love. Psalm 148.3, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Lift up your soul. Express your trust. Nathan talked about that great prayer. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. (gasps) Reflecting upon the goodness and the greatness of the steadfast love of God that brings you close so that there is no longer any fear to come into the presence of God. Because he has torn the veil in two. He has solved the problem that once existed. That we might ultimately belong to him in an intimate relationship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you invite us to pray. And I think perhaps the significance of that is so quickly lost and forgotten or taken for granted. That you, the God of the universe, the Holy One the one utterly set apart from this everything, has invited us to become close and intimate and to experience that relationship as a reward. Father, would you help us to develop the habit of spending one-on-one quiet time with you? In Jesus' name, amen.